Good morning, church. How are you? It is good to be here. I am so happy that I'm able to be here. Oops, I dropped a card. Uh, I'm so glad that I'm here for a little bit. A quick trip. I have to fly back tomorrow um, to get back home. Uh, it's, it's good to be here for a short while. Thank you. And um, I'm glad to be here. Pray for Natalie. She's back home. And uh, I am hoping that I don't have a voicemail on my phone after the service that she's gone into labor or something like that. So please be in prayer for that because <laughs> I want to be there when that happens. <laughs> um, but no, she's doing very well. She's, uh, she's healthy. She's doing really well. But I think she is ready to, uh, to get that baby out of her <laughs> in some ways, in a lot of ways. Uh, pray for us too. We are getting our, uh, our house all ready to go to get moved up here. And so thank you for praying for us thus far and just continue to pray for us as we kind of weather this logistical season. I am so eagerly anticipating being with you every single week and have this be a weekly occurrence and not just uh, whenever I can get up here. So I'm thankful for that, but uh, continue to pray for us. And I'm thankful for all of you and your prayers. Uh, I hope you are in Zechariah chapter 3, um, what Nathan, Brother Nathan, read. Uh, God laid this passage on my heart, and before, I have, I've taught this passage before, and, uh, but I wanted to restudy it again because God laid this passage on my heart, and it's so interesting because I forgot what this coming weekend is, and it kind of plays perfectly into my beginning sort of illustration. This weekend, of course, this coming weekend is the Masters. How many of you know what the Masters is? A lot of people. Yes, Tim knows what it is. <laughs> I have to confess, uh, I'm not much of a golfer. I, um, to me, when you say golf, I think of putt-putt. That's me. That's, that's my game. Uh, I'm not much of a golfer. I wish I was. Uh, I guess I don't have the patience for it or something. Um, but I do know, because I, I did grow up, and I, the only tournament I would watch growing up in golf was the Masters. I would watch it uh, almost every year it was on. There's something special about this event that's held every single year at Augusta National in Augusta, Georgia. It's sort of like the Super Bowl for golfers, if you can think of it that way, if you're a football fan. It, the Masters is set apart in a lot of ways. There's a lot of history with it. If you are sort of one of the best golfers ever, you have to have a Masters win on your resume. It sort of sets you apart. It gives you sort of more credence. It gives you a lot of uh, more sort of accolades. Um, and it's also set apart because of what you win. Um, the Masters is known for its iconic green jacket. The winner of the Masters since the year 1949, actually, uh, the winner has always been given the green jacket. They get a nice Kelly green sport coat after they win. It sort of signifies sort of their accomplishments. It sort of is a quintessential mark of an accomplished golfer is getting a green jacket. Now, some of you might think well, that's kind of silly. They just get a sport coat. Well, it, it, it is in a lot of ways. It is kind of silly, but there, it, it symbolizes their victory. It symbolizes their accomplishment, but it also symbolizes their exclusivity too. Once you get a green jacket, you are in one of the most exclusive clubs in the world, a master's champion. But what's interesting I find is that this green jacket that you win at the master's 
it, it comes with a lot of strict rules, actually. You can't take that jacket off of the club grounds. It has to stay there at Augusta National. So you kind of want it, but it's not really yours. Uh, uh, it, otherwise, it just kind of hangs on a coat rack in Augusta National. It kind of just is a dusty green jacket of a trophy. But the symbolism is there. It, it symbolizes accomplishment and exclusive membership. And I would say it also symbolizes what everyone is striving after. All golfers who are in the PGA Tour are struggling and striving, chasing a green jacket. They want one for themselves. And I think sometimes, a lot of times perhaps, we have approached our Christian lives in much of the same way as if our Christian peace, our Christian security of salvation is a green jacket that we have to win by our accomplishment. As if our peace in life and our salvation in eternal life is something that we have to win through our blood and our sweat and our tears. It's something that we have to achieve. It is something that we can accomplish. And I think what is amazing in this opening chapter, or excuse me, this third chapter of Zechariah, is that it shows something completely opposite of that notion. I think it perfectly showcases God's way of peace, the way God's salvation is attained. And it's not by getting a green jacket that you can win, but it's actually by getting a garment that's given to you. And I want to show you that this morning. So if you're in Zechariah again, look at verses 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and 3 because I think we have two lessons very quickly about this. The first lesson is a lesson about God's silencing word. A lesson about God's silencing word. Look at verse 1. The prophet Zechariah says, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. So this chapter 3 begins the fourth messianic vision that is recorded in the book of Zechariah. The first, second, and third uh, are in chapters 1 and 2. They sort of tell about the future restoration of Israel and how uh, God is going to restore that nation and that people back to its former glory. But what's interesting to note is if you're in Zechariah, look at verses 1 uh, of chapter 1. Where it's, look at verse 4, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4, because uh, the Lord is talking to Zechariah and he says, Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? He is expressing his displeasure with Israel, how they have turned away from their former uh, worship of Yahweh, of Jehovah. But yet, notice in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2, because we go from this displeasure in verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, and then to dwelling, look at verse 10 of chapter 2. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, the scriptures say, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be, shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. So how do we get from that displeasure of this people to this dwelling with them? How is God going to dwell and abide and be with people whom he is displeased with? 
Well, that's exactly what this vision shows and strives to do. It's going to tell us how God is going to make this happen. How God is going to dwell with those people uh, that he displeases him. And I think that's exactly what we find in these first couple verses. We're showing a marvelous truth here. That Israel's restoration is not dependent on them. It's dependent on someone much better. And actually, we're even shown here again that the truth of how a holy God can remain perfectly holy even while pardoning guilty people. That's what we're going to see here very quickly. So that phrase in verse 1 of chapter 3 where it says, um, the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. It has two interesting meanings that have, can give us two sort of readings of this text. The first one is it could mean that Joshua, he is a high priest. He's performing perhaps his priestly duties. He's ministering to the Lord. He's worshiping him. It's sort of the same phrase you will find in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and in Second Chronicles chapter 29. You don't have to turn there. But it's the same phrase uh, regarding the priests and what they were doing in the temple. But the second meaning, I think, holds a little bit more weight. And it's actually, it could mean that Joshua is on trial. It could mean that Joshua is sort of in the courtroom of heaven here, and he is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right to resist him. Now that's very important because Satan's position as we see, standing to the right is the usual position of one who was a prosecutor. So if you're in a courtroom and you're the prosecutor, you are standing to the right of the defendant. And such is what Satan is doing here. He is to the right of Joshua. Also, Satan's name, uh, the word Satan here in the Hebrew actually comes from the Hebrew meaning adversary or accuser. In Revelation 12.10, we are given the name that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And such is what he is doing here. He is accusing Joshua of being unfit for being God's high priest. He is accusing him that he has no worth, no ability. And he cannot and he should not be standing here before the Lord. He is guilty. And I think that that is sort of how I read this text. That Joshua is standing on trial. I used to love the show. The original show Law and Order. When it would come on uh, TV a while ago. It was the longest running television program. For many many years. Uh, and it was sort of this legal procedural drama. You know it has that famous like two note sound. Like, and you know that something's happening. I used to love watching Law and Order. It was, it was cool to me to see the stories. And how they developed. And it would show the legal side. And it would show the investigative side. Of how law worked. And I thought it was really interesting um, and there's something about the way courtrooms are put to film I think sometimes that makes us all want to be a lawyer I don't know how true a lot of those TV shows are about how lawyers you know uh, um, you know I, I object and all those that I don't think that's how most courtrooms are but at least how they appear on TV they appear really exciting um, and um, but anyways that's kind of how I see this scene and I, and I will hope that you can see it the same way too. We have all the major players of a courtroom right here in this scene. You have the judge. It is the angel of the Lord. It says right there, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord here is the judge. And it's actually another name for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who is holding the gavel in this courtroom. He is the one who is holding the, the, the verdict of his high priest in the palms of his hands. He is the judge. There's also the prosecutor. We saw that. The prosecutor was Satan. He was standing at the right side of Joshua, throwing out accusations and throwing out all sorts of libels against the high priest and accusing him and throwing him and making sure that... God, the judge, sees him as guilty. And then we have Joshua, the defendant. He is Joshua, the high priest. <laughs> he is standing in in this vision that the Lord is giving to Zechariah. He is representing the nation of Israel. So how Joshua is judged is how Israel would be judged. His verdict was theirs too. He is on trial. And I think it's interesting that the high priest is on trial. Joshua is the son of Jehoshadak. He's the high priest serving Israel around the time of the Babylonian captivity. And I think what is interesting is that we are never given the words of Satan's accusation. We are never told what Satan said at this trial. We are never told what accusations were being laid at Joshua's feet. Or excuse me, at the feet of the angel of the Lord, of the judge. We are never sort of made to know what the indictment was. And yet we are given sort of a glimpse of it in verse 3. Where it says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel of the Lord. This is a strong case for Joshua to be deemed guilty. There's an interesting chapter in Exodus chapter 28. When God is going through uh, what's going to go on in the temple, how people are to worship him. Exodus 28 is 43 verses long. And it talks the whole time about what priests were supposed to wear while they were performing their priestly duties. 43 verses, an entire chapter, God designates and delegates exactly and details exactly what his priests were to wear when they were in service of him. Very clearly, God is concerned about how worship functions. And so here we can very well know that if Joshua is appearing before the Lord in filthy garments, that is garments that are covered in dung, in manure, in excrement, that's what that means. If he is standing before the Lord, ministering even, if he is on trial because he is wearing these filthy garments, we know that he is guilty. That's what is implied here. That's what the inference of this accusation is. That he is unqualified. He is not wearing what a priest should wear. He is unfit for being the Lord's high priest. This was a serious accusation. He's wearing filthy garments that's representative of Joshua's sins, yes. But as it is in this vision, is representative of the nation of Israel's sins as well. He is standing there covered in the sins of the fathers of Israel. And it dishonors God. And it suggests very clearly that Joshua is guilty. Whatever Satan was throwing at this trial, it was very clear that that was true. Joshua was guilty. He deserved that guilty verdict. He deserved the gavel coming down on him and being, and being named guilty. 
But what is so fascinating to me about this story is what the Lord does with this accusation. Where they're standing there, the judge is hearing this trial. Satan is accusing the high priest of being unfit and guilty of, of sin and condemnation. But the Lord doesn't hear it. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said unto Joshua... No, the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? He doesn't even hear Satan's accusations. It's as if he hears them, but he doesn't even acknowledge them. He doesn't even say that, okay, you're right, I have to condemn this high priest to hell. I have to send my nation, the people that I have chosen, off and they will be exiled forever. That's not what he does. He, in fact, rebukes Satan. He rebukes him twice. He says, I rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee. He's emphasizing the fact that these charges that Satan is trying to get into this trial are inadmissible. And why? Because what he says next, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? He's emphasizing the fact that this is my prerogative. These are my people. This is my high priest. And I am going to redeem him by the power of my own words. This is my people, Israel. He's telling Zechariah, I am going to redeem them. This is my priest, Joshua. I am going to rescue him. No one can touch my people. And in fact, if you look at verse 8 of chapter 2, he declares this very, very explicitly. He says in verse 8 of chapter 2, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory that he hath sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. If you touch my people, you're touching the apple of my eye. If you touch them, you are touching something that is precious to me. These are the people that I have chosen as a brand plucked out of the fire. As people chosen, plucked out of exile. My prerogative, God is basically saying, are with the exiles. I have chosen them. They are mine. And you can't do anything to accuse them, Satan. You can't do anything to condemn them because my word, my silencing word, is more powerful than your word of accusation. And I love that. Because again, notice who's doing the talking. We're at this trial. Most of the time, when you're at a trial, you have to give very well-laden arguments. This trial is different. Because notice who does the talking in verse 2. It's the Lord. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, because not only is Satan silenced by what Jesus says, but Joshua never lifts up his voice to defend himself. God himself becomes his attorney. This is why it's such a really different and peculiar trial, because the judge takes himself down and becomes the attorney on behalf of the defendant. He comes and speaks on Joshua's defense. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2 because that's exactly what God is telling Zechariah that he's going to do. He says, be silent. 
You don't have to give your arguments. Be silent, O flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He is raised up to take your defense. He is raised up to be your advocate. And such is the promise to Joshua and such is the promise to Zechariah. That their God, Jehovah God, would take up the defense of his people. They only need to be silent. But not only that. Not only a lesson about God's silencing word. Again, verse 2 And then I'm going to jump down to verses 4 and 5. We have a lesson about God's saving word. Look at what he says. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. And I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord here becomes the attorney. The judge becomes the attorney. and He commands that these filthy garments be taken away. And that new clothes be put on this defendant. This defendant who was guilty, mind you. And the meaning is clear. It's very explicit for us. In verse 4, he says, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. This changing of the garments is, a, is suggestive in promising that the, that the sins of Israel and the sins of Joshua were going to be taken off of them. That God was going to cause their iniquity to be removed from them. This is what those that take away the filthy garments means. It's a removal of guilt. And it's a promise of God to restore his people and clear their guilty record. And it's right there in the name Joshua. The name Joshua means Yahweh saves. It's a promise to us that Jehovah was going to save his high priest. He was going to save his people. And yes, even greater than this, he was going to save the entire world by placing upon them his very own change of raiment. It's, it was translated when Nathan was reading from his Bible, festal robes. It's, it's indicative of Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 where the prophet Isaiah talks about these garments of salvation. That's what Joshua was clothed in. He was clothed in salvation garments. And so as Joshua is restored, so will Israel be restored. All by the words and all by the promise of their advocate. Who was the judge. Who was the angel of the Lord. Now this scene. To me is just. It's dripping with good news. It's so full of gospel. That I wish I could spend a lot more time on it. Because not only does Joshua stand to represent Israel. He yes represents you. He represents the sinner. 
And the good news that is given to him is the same good news that we have in our gospel. That before the Lord, you and I stand rightfully deemed guilty. We are guiltily, rightly accused by the accuser. We stand in our own filthy garments that are just covered in the the excrement of our sin. And we have nothing that we can offer at this trial to clear our name. And yet, even anything we might say at this trial to clear our name only serves to incriminate us even more. I think of that passage in Isaiah 64 where it talks about that our righteousnesses are only as filthy rags in God's sight. If we were trying to clean up ourselves and clear our name, it's as if we were taking a dirty dish towel and cleaning the house with it. To me, that's disgusting. I hate washing dishes. I think when we get to heaven, that will be the one thing that magically is just automatically done. That when you're done eating, the dishes just automatically appear clean. You don't have to wash them anymore. You don't have to put them in the dishwasher. They're automatically sparkling clean right after you eat. That would be wonderful to me. That's heaven to me. Uh, I'm being facetious. But when you are done, you don't take the dirty dish towel that cleaned all the dishes that is covered in old food And then go and clean your countertops. That's just spreading the mess around. Such is what we do when we try to clear our names and try and get rid of our own guilt by presenting God our own righteousness. He says it's as filthy rags. You can't clear your own name. Before the Lord, we are as Joshua. We are speechless. Because we are guilty, but God is raised up, as it says in that verse 13 of chapter 2. God is raised up to take our case. Again, the judge becomes the attorney and he pleads the case that leads to our acquittal. At this trial, we are acquitted because that attorney, yes, he even becomes even better than any trial you've seen on Law and Order. This attorney becomes our substitute, and he takes our guilty verdict on himself. This is because we are given the promise in the gospel that Jesus stops the gavel. You are rightly condemned. You are deemed guilty. And yet the promise of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, stops the gavel from coming down on you by bearing the brunt of that gavel himself. He takes all of your guilty verdicts and brings it onto himself. And before the Lord, our sin-stained garments are exchanged for change of raiment. I love that phrase in verse 4 where it says, take away. You notice that the judge doesn't talk about cleaning up these garments. He doesn't talk about washing them in the dryer. He doesn't talk about fixing them and and fixing all their tattered ends. He says, take them away. The words are, remove them, abolish them, remove them forever, have them be disposed, and put on change of raiment. This is indicative of the, what we get in the gospel. Our sin is taken off of us and we are given Jesus' robes of righteousness. We don't have to clean up our own robes. We are given new clothes. It is what Nathan, yes, referred to earlier. That we are made new in the light of the gospel. 
New creatures wearing new robes that are given to us. Robes that are crisp and clean and white and have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Look at, let me read you some verses from Revelation chapter 7. You can turn there quickly. Revelation 7 verses uh, 13 through 15. Because this is what we are going to be wearing in eternity. Revelation 7 verse 13 says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They have robes that have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. This is Jesus what he does. He exchanges our filthy garments for white robes. He is the one who does it. He says, I have caused... I have done it. I have made this happen. And this is the grand news of what we are given in the gospel of Christ. Going back to our earlier illustration is that this gospel is not a green jacket that we have to win. It's a white robe that we are freely given. It's something that we are given by Jesus' accomplishment. It's something that we can't earn. It's something that we can't win. It's something that we can't argue for on our own. It's something that God does on our behalf. He says, I have caused. God makes it happen. This to me is an unmistakable picture of our salvation. Our names are cleared because of Jesus. We are deemed uh, innocent because he has taken our guilt. Jesus stands in our place that we might stand in his place. And he takes all of our iniquity. He takes it away. And yet he takes it onto himself so that he might give us his righteousness. We are made the priests of God to serve him. Because again, as it says in Isaiah 61, we are given those robes of righteousness. Actually, let me read it really quickly. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. This is what we are given in the gospel. And this was Joshua's hope. And confidence for restoration. And it is our confidence and hope too. That this was a promise that that was going to be carried out. Not by something that Joshua had to do. Not by something that Zechariah had to make happen. Not by something that Israel could form for themselves. But as we learn later. If you actually read verses 8 through 10. And as is promised throughout the rest of this book. It was the promise as it says in verse 8. Of the branch. He says, hear now, O Israel, verse 8 of Zechariah 3, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, Jesus. He was the one that was going to make this happen. He was the one that was going to stand in their place. He was the one that was going to advocate on behalf of his people. 
As we learn in Hebrews, he was going to be the true and the better high priest. The high priest who stood before the Father, not as guilty, but as perfectly righteous. As the high priest who would give us his blamelessness for us. And he was the one that was to secure our pardon and all of our peace. It is by his words, his words alone that we are advocated. As the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon, he says this, Foul and filthy as you are, there is only one voice which can speak and make you clean. The voice which silenced your cruel foe is the voice that rolls the stars along against with which nothing can stand. It's the voice of God. At the trial of your life, if you are standing before the Lord this morning and you are, you are deemed guilty but righteous by faith in his sight. And it is his voice that makes you so. It is the voice of our advocate who is our God and Heavenly Father that clears your name. And in fact, let me read one more verse to you. It's Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. The same verse where we learn of Satan's name, the accuser of the brethren, promises that the voice of God would be the one that would bring about salvation. Revelation 10, 12, 12 10, excuse me, says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Your accuser is cast down, is silenced by God's words. His words of justification. His words of pardon. His words of peace. And like Joshua, we don't have to fear our accuser. Because our advocate, his voice is so much louder and stronger and better than the voice of our accuser. We can shout to him, you have nothing on me, Satan. Because I have one who stood in my stead. I'm reminded of this old hymn. I had to look up the words so I wouldn't forget them. It's one I don't think is in a lot of hymn books. It's a hymn by this old man in the 1800s by the name of Samuel Gandhi. And he wrote this hymn called His Be the Victor's Name. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But the words to me are incredibly powerful. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a few of the stanzas. He says in this hymn. I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Sin, Satan, death, press near to harass and appall. Let but my bleeding God appear. Backward they go and fall. His be the victor's name. Who fought our fight alone. Triumphant saints no honor claim. Their conquest was his own. By weakness and defeat he won the mead and crown, trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell and hell laid low, made sin he sin or threw, bowed to the grave and killed it so, and death by dying slew. This was your God. Your judge who became your attorney, who became your substitute and spoke the words that have cleared your name. And if you are trusting in those words, your name is clear. 
Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the flip side of that is, if you do not trust in those words for you, and you trust in your own words for yourself, you still stand condemned. And it leads us to say this morning, whose words are you trusting in at this trial? Are you trusting in your own defense of yourself? Are you entrusting, are you being silent and letting God's word speak for you? Are you believing that you can win this salvation like a green jacket by your impressiveness? Or are you trusting in the fact that God clears the guilty? Let us pray.